Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the SCANA studio today is Dr. Herrick Brown, who is assistant curator of the Charles Moore Herbarium at USC. We're going to talk about a very special collection, the Ravenel Collection and Journals of Fungi, but also the fact that they're now going to be available to everybody through the Internet. So, first of all, Herrick, welcome to the journal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's find out a little bit about you, your your background. Who who are you? Where did you go to school, and why did you end up studying fungi? <laughs> well, I'm originally from Columbia, South Carolina. I uh, grew up here. I went to uh, Dreher High School, and um, back then it was a little less developed than it is now. And uh, my parents would take me down to Gills Creek, and we would scoop around in the waters there and collect tadpoles and minnows. So I kind of grew up with as much of exposure to the woods and, and nat- natural areas as you could possibly get being in Columbia, but we also took trips to other parts of the state that were more natural. Okay. You weren't one of those kids who went exploring through the those underground tunnels that, that uh, part of Gills Creek and Rocky Creek? and. No, I probably knew some of those kids, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And so where'd you go to school and How'd you end up as a botanist? Yeah, so um, I stayed here. I went to USC as an undergrad and then also for my master's. And uh, for the most part, I was interested um, in reptiles and amphibians. Um, they just sort of captivated me, my attention. And, and uh, um, as I grew up and, and moved away for a little while to um, Washington, D.C., I worked in the Smithsonian Institution at the National Museum of Natural History. And... Um, was exposed to a lot of the interesting ways that they curate their library collections there. Um, The library is not one place, it's distributed all over the building. And so my job there kind of took me to each and every one of those collections and I had to basically research scientific names and when they were first published and, um, and make sure I had all the facts straight. Um, but it was that environment that sort of had me cloistered away in what was otherwise a windowless windowless room and um, uh, not much chance to get outside that left me longing to come back to South Carolina where I might have an opportunity to get outdoors a little bit more. Um, and it was also the exposure to the historical components of, of looking at uh, scientific names and um, the people that did the actual exploration to find these new species um, that got me interested in historical botany. And one of the chief reasons of being being interested in that is that the plants don't really move around as much as the animals. So if you read some of the early explorers like uh, Mark Catesby or John and William Bartram, you can actually follow their trails or the paths that they took through the state and find some of the plant communities still you know, thriving today. So I'm interested in that sort of thing. Even things like Oconee Bells? Exactly. Okay. So historical botany and plant taxonomy, is that the right word? Taxonomy. And so you you came back to Columbia, Mm -hmm. what, a few years ago? Uh, This was probably the end of 2006, 2007. So about, what's that, seven, eight years ago now, maybe more. (laughs) All right. Let's explain to to, to Tyler, what exactly is a herbarium? A herbarium is not what many people think. Many people would think that a herbarium is something more akin to an arboretum, which would be an outdoor place where you have trees, um, or they think it might be something like a conservatory or a greenhouse where you would have many beautiful tropical plants. Uh, A herbarium is more like a plant morgue. The plants are all dead, and they are all pressed flat and dried and glued to sheets and filed away in basically like a filing cabinet. The Ravenel collection dates from the 19th century. That's correct. Uh, it straddles the Civil War mm-hmm. um, and actually several parts of the state because he originally was from um, the lower part of the state and then mm-hmm. for his health he moved to Aiken, so right. different different plant zone for sure. Yeah. Um, and. It's my understanding that initially his journals, which which are part of they're part historical, but they're also botanical, right? I mean, this he, is correct. Yeah. I mean, he he kept plant information along with what was going on politically, and that's how ended up at Converse College. Yeah. So, um, it, yeah. There's so there's an interesting quote that I'd like to share that. Um, 
prior, about two years prior to his death, Ravenel was actually meeting with John McLaren McBride, who was then president of South Carolina College. Um, and McBride was, uh, I think he was a Civil War veteran, and um, he was respected in the community, but he was also an agriculturalist. And so he was interested in um, establishing an herbarium at uh, South Carolina College. And so he knew Ravenel was one of the foremost botanists in the state, and he was uh, sort of courting Ravenel uh, in the hopes that he might secure the collection for the college. And uh, Ravenel has this nice quote towards, towards the, uh, the end of his journal. Uh, he says, I shall be glad to have my old alma mater to be the custodian of the collection, the labors of my lifetime. Nothing is decided upon definitively. I offered the whole collection and all of my botanical books for $1,500, with which he seemed satisfied. I have some 10 to 12,000 species altogether of plants. And so McBride's plan at this point was to go back to South Carolina College and present the offer to the trustees. Um, however, they were not able to secure the funding. And the deal fell through. Two years later, Ravenel died, and his wife didn't, I mean, she knew the collection was valuable, but she didn't know exactly what to do with it or what it was worth. And um, we spoke about some of the dichotomies of where Ravenel lived and how his collection consists of things from the Low Country and then from Aiken. Well, the other dichotomy is that he started out as a, a botanist through and through. He was interested in vascular plants, which, which would be things like oak trees, um, but not things like algae or mushrooms or lichens. Uh, however, he quickly mastered that set of plants and moved on to what they called at the time cryptogamic botany. And that would be mushrooms and fungi and, and, and lichens. And so the cryptogamic portion of his collection was purchased by a trustee of the British Museum. And so that whole collection moved across the pond uh, about 1887, 1889 or so. But there was a, uh, a distant relative of Ravenel's, I believe his name was Henry Edmund Ravenel, and he was a lawyer in the upstate, and he was interested in uh, founding an all-women's school, Converse College in Spartanburg, and he wanted them to have a teaching collection. And so he sort of orchestrated the purchase of the collection or the transfer of the collection from Ravenel's widow to Converse College. All right, Henry William Ravenel was internationally known for his studies, and his works uh, were published in the United Kingdom. That's right. Yep. So, you know, this is another example of the transatlantic scientific work that's been going on in South Carolina really almost since the 1680s. Yep. The first things were going back to what became the Royal Academy. Mm -hmm. So let, let's move into the, the collection that is now at USC Converse has, has moved this collection to Columbia. Right, yeah. So it, it, yeah, that was just the beginning of the checkered past of the collection. So, well, let's, um, do, let's do that. I mean, how, <laughs> how collections move about here are, yeah. are, are wonderful, and, and sometimes the stories aren't quite as happy that they move about and then they get lost. So. Right, right. There's a couple of things to consider. Um, you know, Ravenel knew that he was amassing quite a collection, and he mentioned that in that quote that I, that I referred to. Um, and he knew that it had some significant value. But just, just by the very nature of being a botanist, you're, you're sort of comparing what you know to things that you don't know as you go along. And so you enter into these uh, correspondences between other uh, scientists in the field, and you exchange material. And through those exchanges, you can make the comparisons that you need to make in order to make a proper identification as to you know, what this plant actually is. By that means, a lot of Ravenel's material is actually already just it was sent to his colleagues at Missouri Botanical Garden to uh, the New York uh, Academy, uh, which is now New York Botanical Garden's collection, uh, colleagues at Harvard University. So there's small little pockets of, of Ravenel material that you can find um, in a lot of those institutions already. It's checkered in that regard just, just by its very nature, but the issues with preserving it as an intact collection and, and keeping things together, uh, which holds its value just by its sheer size. And um, it also has uh, rifled in between some of the specimens that we've been looking at. There are um, little snippets of correspondence. There are 
proofs of some of his publications. Uh, there's little detailed notes and even newspapers from, from the 19th century, which, which are really interesting. So keeping all of that material together enhances its value. And so what happened was uh, once the vascular plant portion was transferred to Converse College. Okay, this, okay now vascular, we're talking about oak trees. Oak trees, yeah. And so it would be any sort of plant that if you if you snap it in half, if you snap the stem in half, you're going to see little threads, little tissue that transports the nutrients through the, the stem. Well, so, but that could also include something like a sunflower, right, doesn't it? Absolutely, okay. yeah. So okay. herbaceous things, woody things, ferns would be vascular plants. Um, they don't necessarily have to make fruits and flowers. Uh, okay. Ferns and pine trees are examples of, of vascular plants that don't make fruits okay. or flowers. So that's the first thing that went to, to Converse. That's the first thing that went to Converse. And unfortunately, the school was not uh, doing too well financially. And so the, the, uh, the board or the trustees at that point decided to sell a portion of the collection to Biltmore Estate. And the sad uh, fate that that portion met was that Biltmore then endured a horrific flood and destroyed everything. So none of the material that went to Biltmore survived. And there were several other um, botanists uh, from the South that had their collections were deposited there as well, and, and those were also lost. But there was sort of a savior that, that came into the, the picture at this point in time, and her name was Miss Elizabeth Williams, and she was a biology instructor at Converse. And she feared that uh, the collection would suffer further fragmentation as the uh, administration continued to eye it as a potential source of revenue to help their, their, their fledgling college. So the way she reacted was to squirrel the collection away in her attic. <laughs> where it spent the good part of the the twentieth the good part of the beginning of the twentieth century, but it wasn't it wasn't stagnant. She actually activated the collection, which was great. So what she was doing was sending out the material that Ravenel had identified back in eighteen seventy as as early as eighteen forties, uh, but up until the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties. Um, and one of the things you might be surprised about is that in scientific uh, nomenclature, the perception might be out there that that name is the name and there is no other name. But unfortunately, um, scientists have a changing perception of the world as, as many of us do, and the names change as well. Um, the only trick is that they actually have to publish their reason for changing it and what that new name is. So what Miss Elizabeth Williams was doing was she was sending out the material to uh, more contemporary scientists and experts in, in the field to review the material that Ravenel had collected and put updated uh, names on the specimens. And in some cases, Ravenel just got it completely wrong, and you know they put a, a better identification on it. And and some of them ended up being named for him, right? That's true. There's not too many uh, vascular plants that are named for Ravenel, but he was also well known for his work in mycology, which would be the study of mushrooms and fungi. And um, there are quite a few. Uh, there's even a genus named after Ravenel, Ravenelia. Well, you know, I, I find this interesting that this this instructor did something that most librarians would tell. <gasps> she took it out of the archives. Right. But she saved it. Yeah. But it it wasn't just stored in the attic. Literally, she. As you said, she made the collection active, right. uh, kept it current, updated. Right. And so, yeah, and, the, and evidence of that is, is uh, apparent throughout the collection. As, as we go through it, you can see that there's the, the 19th century labels that Ravenel applied or Ravenel's colleagues. And then there's also the more contemporary or early 20th century labels that, that bear the names of a lot of the uh, uh, botanists that were active during that period of time. So when did the collection continuing with Checkered Path come out of her attic? So, yeah, I'm not exactly sure when, but I, I think it was it was after Miss Williams had passed. Folks started asking, where where is this collection? And the rumors spread, and, and finally they, they proved to be true that it, it was in her attic. And apparently she lived in a duplex sort of house, and the attic space was shared. So the... The tenant who lived next door uh, gave permission to uh, the trustees from Converse College to, to go through there and look in the attic and, and systematically remove the collection from, from that location back to Converse College. 
And so my understanding at this point is that Converse College had the collection, but they didn't really have uh, the resources or the staff to dedicate to uh, restoring it. And one of the issues that we spoke about, you know, archival collections and not really wanting to put them in an attic, mm-hmm. um, Ravenel didn't have access to the best quality materials during that time. And also through the Civil War, you can tell that, that he had even less access to, to sheets on which to mount his specimens. But the paper on which many of them are mounted is not acid-free. And so it's not this archival quality type of material we would use today. And over time, you would expect that the acid in those sheets is going to cause deterioration on the actual specimen. Uh, so what what ultimately ended up happening was uh, Dr. Herr, who was emeritus professor at USC at the time. John Herr. John Herr, yeah. He recently passed. Uh, he actually worked with uh, folks from Converse College to have the entire collection transferred to the A.C. Moore Herbarium at USC. And um, that was that transfer took place in the early 2000s, I think. Okay. And since then, we've been working to carefully remove the specimens from the acid sheets and transfer them to uh, more contemporary sized and um, contemporary quality not, or, or archival quality sheets. And that's where it is today. And I'm thinking about the, the post-Civil War period that people were beginning to get into pulp paper, which of course is highly acidic. It also disintegrates. Mm-hmm. But now an archivist, being an archivist as well as a botanist, if the acid in the paper had begun interacting with the specimen, does that destroy the value of the specimen? Uh, yeah. I mean, when you go through the collection, typically when you're making a botanical specimen, what you want are uh, the most illustrative portions of the plant that you can help you identify it. Mm-hmm. And by that, what I mean is you want roots, shoots, flowers, leaves, fruits, um, you know, as much as you can get. So for something that's like a sunflower, you can probably pull the whole plant up and you'd have, you know, the entire thing fit on a sheet. You might have to bend the stem a little bit so that it sort of zigs and zags across the page, but ultimately you can probably fit the whole thing on on the sheet. And now when I say a sheet, I'm talking about something that's about 11 and a half by 17 inches. Um, so close to legal size. But uh, for something that's much larger, like an oak tree, you're not really going to be able to ever fit that on a sheet. Uh, <laughs> <No>. so, <laughs> so it comes in pieces. And typically what, what uh, is used to make a specimen of like an oak tree would be uh, the apical portion of a stem. So where the leaves and everything are at the tip of the branch, and you might have a few acorns or a few catkins, the little wiggly worm things that you see in the springtime. And rarely do you see, you know, a section of, of wood from a tree. Now, there are wood collections which are stored separately, and, and they're more of a three-dimensional kind of collection, you know, not pressed flat. Uh, okay. That, that, I was going to get into that, the, the, the pressing of flowers. It was very, not just for scientists, but it was very popular in the 19th and early 20th centuries for individuals to press flowers. We can find old books today where uh, particularly flowers, you know, something that could be flat, would be put with tissue paper and then like a big dictionary folded shut. And then you've got souvenirs or for some reason people were saving them. Is that how the scientists did they press it? I'm not exactly sure. I think their equipment might have been a little more sophisticated. Now, we use today um, a, a plant press, which is basically two sort of um, lattice sort of boards put together that are about 11 by 17 inches, you know, the same size of, as a herbarium sheet. Um, and since they're just strips of wood that are sort of crisscrossed together, it's a little bit lighter weight than carrying a whole big thing of plywood. And then we just have some nylon straps that you cinch down so you can squeeze it nice and tight. In, in one of the letters I was reading uh, that Ravenel's daughter wrote to a colleague when she was talking about his father, uh, she does refer to him as carrying his, his plant press with him everywhere he went in the field. So um, obviously they, they still they use – I doubt that that piece of equipment has changed much since the 19th century. There was also something that they would use called a vasculum, which was this, uh, it almost looked like a little mailbox or something, but it was intended to keep plants fresh while you're in the field. Okay. You mentioned John Herr, and Carolina's 
blessed over the years to have a number of distinguished botanists. Wade Batts, the late Wade Batson, right. Professor Emeritus David Rembert. Mm-hmm. Um, once upon a time, you used to see students walking all around the campus ad- having to identify the trees and flora and that and that kind of thing. Yeah. Botany as a major seems to have kind of passed out of fashion. Yeah, as a major, you probably don't see it so much. Now, we still do offer uh, a tax, a plant taxonomy course. It's either offered in the spring or the fall, and um, Dr. John Nelson teaches that. That You might actually still see that one on campus because they have a class flag that they carry with them, so it's 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 relatively easy to spot them when they are out on a, on a trip. But uh, by and large, yeah, that's one of the things we fear is that um, you don't see as many uh, young botanists coming through the works. That's interesting since the scientific, the, the medical community is more and more turning to the natural world for sources for drug treatments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I was just up in uh, Greenville this weekend and saw uh, some little bundles of yellow root, which is a native plant that grows up in the Appalachians. And I asked the lady, what do people use that for? And she said, it's apparently good for high blood pressure. Uh, just steep it and make a tea. And that, you know, that really, is, I guess, botany sort of has its roots, if you excuse the pun, <laughs> in, in medicine. And um, that was uh, one of the, the, the major drives in early exploration of the new world. They were looking for new and useful productions of nature and things that could be either eaten or were uh, useful as wood products and uh, things that would be beautiful in gardens um, and, and things that were useful in terms of uh, medicine. You know, I guess I'm, I'm thinking folks out there, well, you've got these pressed press flowers, pressed leaves. How does that help people identify it? <laughs> but I have had the privilege of, on a visit to London, I had a friend at the, at the museum there. I've personally handled Catesby's Herbarium. Mm-hmm. And... The historical botanist archivists there, of course, we were looking at white gloves and right. all of that. And yes, specimens over 200 years old, right. you could still tell what, you know, I don't know the glycerin, the oils, whatever, whatever Catesby used, right. the, the leaves were easily identifiable there. And what was even better is Linnaeus had looked at this herbarium and made notes, right. which he then used when he created his plant taxonomies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, pr- it's pretty amazing. And that, uh, that's an interesting point. You know, it's uh, sometimes these specimens actually hold up better than the headstones of the botanists <laughs> that made them. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so in within the Ravenel collection, um, the, it's pretty amazing. There's at least one specimen that came to him, came to Ravenel through some circuitous route. Now, I'm not really sure uh, what sort of exchange happened, but it was a specimen collected by Constantine Raffinesque. And so he was sort of more of a contemporary of Audubon, earlier 19th century. And um, there, it's a specimen of something that most people would probably recognize pretty easily in their garden. It's a salvia splendens, I think is the name. Um, but it, it would be your typical garden salvia that, that has nice bright red flowers and is often sold as a, as a bedding plant. Uh, but Raffinesque, however he managed to preserve this thing, the flowers are still brilliantly crimson colored. And all the leaves and everything are still there. And really the trick is, I think, when, when you go to press the plant, you want to you wanna get it flat, of course, because you want it to stick to the sheet, um, but long and low, kind of like a good barbecue, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to dry it long and low. Um, you don't want to burn it to a crisp, and you don't want to over-dry it. And in, in terms of making uh, use of these specimens into the future and with other sort of uh, salient research applications like getting DNA out of them, long and low is the trick. Uh, if you cook them too hot or too dry, it denatures the the. Okay, so, so part of the process is to put them in an oven or in the sun or... Yeah, now historically there were probably other, other methods using some sort of chemical treatment, I'm not sure. Um, because as you said, in the Catesby Herbarium, some of these things are two, over 200 years old and still easily recognizable, retain their color. 
But in a more contemporary sense, yeah, that's what we do is we, we use a, something called a drying oven. And it looks a lot like a herbarium cabinet, which is just a big, tall steel case. And it has some shelves in there. Um, and the drying oven has slightly taller shelves so you can fit a, a plant press in there on its side. And the idea is that you have uh, warm air that's blown up through a uh, sort of like a convection oven. You have a little fan in the bottom that's blowing heat over a, a heating element. And the hot air runs up between corrugated pieces of cardboard. So the plant press, when it's fully assembled, you have sort of a layered cake. You have a, a sheet of corrugated cardboard a piece of cotton rag blotter paper that's sort of absorbent, and then some newspaper leaves. So it's sort of a low-budget uh, method. Um, and the specimen is between those sheets of newspaper. And you just repeat that sort of layered uh, approach over and over in your plant press. You set it on its side, and the channels through the corrugated cardboard help wick away the moisture from the specimen. Oh. And so by that method, you can get things, for the most part, dried out within two to three days. Okay, I, so. I was going to ask you, if if you went out and we'll just take salvia, how long would it, two to three days to create a herbarium specimen from that? Yeah, and, and if certainly something that's a little more juicy, like a cactus or, or uh, maybe a, an aquatic plant or something like that um, might take a little bit longer. If you have a, a thick uh, rhizome, like a... Uh, a root or something like that, like if you were pressing a sweet potato, you would probably actually want to slice it into thin sections uh, and then press it that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's also another way we can sort of illustrate some of the plant's anatomy is by doing cross sections of, of the stems or of fruits and those sorts of things yep. too. Here, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edges' journal, and I'm talking to Dr. Herrick Brown, who is assistant curator at the A.C. Moore Herbarium at USC. And specifically, we're talking about the collection that had been assembled by Henry William Ravenel, Dr. Ravenel. No, he's Mr. Ravenel, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think he got an honorary doctorate at some point. He actually wanted to study medicine. His daddy didn't want him to. That's correct, yeah. So we're talking about Henry William Ravenel, who was a botanist during the 19th century. He ended up taking a career. I mean, he became a, he owned a plantation. He was an agriculturist, but Mm -hmm. he still pursued this hobby, which became really his vocation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He he mentions in his journal that um, he was fortunate as his father sort of uh, talked him out of going to medical school. he had a, a close cousin of his, Francis Pierre Porche, actually did go to medical school, and they, they tromped the, the southern fields uh, around the Santee River. And, um, but Ravenel, um, recognizing that he was going to be uh, probably a wealthy plantation owner, some of the best performing uh, plantations in South Carolina were along that, that stretch of the uh, upper Santee. He mentioned specifically in his journal that he didn't want to be idle. Uh, and so he wholeheartedly went into the study of, of botany, uh, he, and he spent most of his childhood, you know, running through the fields and forests down there. And he mentions at some point as well that he didn't just want to make specimens and catalog plants, but that he would revisit the plants at different times of the year so that he could see what they were doing and watch them flower and the flower turn into a fruit and then the fruit would open up and seeds would drop out and the seedlings would sprout. So he really wanted to per, uh, sort of develop this this um, holistic understanding of the plants that he was learning about. And that's a good example. Something like a maypop, mm-hmm. uh, which has a vine, a flower, a fruit. So if I were doing something for a herbarium, where I want it to, to have all three stages, but then ha- the fruit, which is about the size of a plum for po- people who don't know what it is, uh, makes a great hand grenade for kids' battles. <laughs> it does. But you can also eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you go about preserving that fruit? So, yeah, um, it's it, yeah, it's sort of this inflated little green egg-looking thing, and it, if you pop it open, it's sort of got these little seeds that have a, a fleshy coating that that's pretty tasty and it's it's i guess it's related to passion flower and so passion fruit if you if you ever you know eat anything made with that 
But making a specimen of something like that, yeah, it does present a challenge because um, some plants you can find them where they have a flower and a fruit at the same time. But often because of that natural progression from flower to fruit, you either get one or the other when you're making a specimen because a specimen really is a snapshot of the species at one point in time. So something that's three-dimensional like a maypop, well, often when you go and put that in the plant press and you cinch it down, you just hear the pop of the fruit. And when you when you open it up, it's just sort of split open and it's dried and you know doesn't resemble anything like it like it like it used to. But there's other ways of doing that, and yeah, you could you could take a cross section of the of the fruit and and make a make it thinner so that it, when it presses, you can actually see what sort of shape it might have had. Yeah, and it's also one of the um, advantages that botanical illustrators have over actual botanists is that they can sit in a garden and watch a plant go through those um, developmental processes, produce a flower, produce a fruit, and then they can illustrate all of that on the same page. And so if you look at some of the earlier uh, botanical uh, books that were published then, you can see all, you know, everything from roots, shoots, leaves, fruits, you know, all that I mentioned. But if you look at any one particular specimen, you're only going to get one or the other. And folks have used that a lot, you know, in in more contemporary research to look at uh, shifts in when things are flowering or when they're fruiting. It can look at herbarium specimens that have captured, you know, a record of, you know, back in the 19th century, maypops were fruiting in June, and now maybe they're fruiting later on in the year. Hey, my maypop did fruit in May, also in August. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my Japanese magnolia bloomed in April like it's supposed to. It bloomed in June as well. Uh, And it bloomed in August. So it makes interesting work for you you folks with the herbarium because if you say, well, it it only, maypops only bloom in May doesn't work anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been talking about Ravenel's vascular plants. What about his fungi? Yeah, so probably not as well understood. Um, There was a biography published um, back in the, uh, I think, late 80s um, that focused on Ravenel's mycological endeavors or so mycology is the study of fungi. Right. So mushrooms. And it probably includes, to some extent, things like lichen because there's a sort of symbiotic relationship where you've got a fungus and some algae and apparently a yeast growing together. Uh, but for Ravenel's purposes, yeah, he was interested in anything that we typically would not necessarily think of as a plant. And uh, so he, he segued into this this branch of botany at the time, uh, relatively early on. He graduated South Carolina College in uh, 1832, and then um, by 18, the mid-1840s, he was well into looking at vascular plants, um, to the point by 1850, he had delivered a talk on the uh, plants of the Santee region at the uh, American uh, Association for the Advancement of Science meeting that was held in 1850 in Charleston. And that's kind of where he got connected with a lot of his international colleagues and others within the the United States. And by that point in time, he had also really got into studying mushrooms. Uh, and prior to that, the, the preeminent uh, mycologist in, in the United States was Louis David von Schweinitz. And his herbarium, I think, was up in uh, Philadelphia at the time. But Ravenel was fortunate that he had uh, another sort of a Yankee colleague that had moved down here um, and was at the time living in Society Hill, and his name was Moses Ashley Curtis. And Curtis was really, he was familiar with the von Schweinitz uh, collection, and he uh, helped Ravenel sort of learn mycology. And uh, Ravenel and Curtis would exchange a lot of letters over the next, over the, the next few years. Curtis sort of supported Ravenel with this really ambitious um, project where Ravenel wanted to publish something called the Fungi Caroliniani Exicati. Translate that into English okay, from Latin. So, so it's the, the, the fungi of Carolina presented in an Exicati form. So an Exicati is essentially a miniature herbarium. It's a bound book that has actual specimens glued to the sheets. So if you publish it 
you got to go out and do a lot of collecting to have more than just one or two copies, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and and his his project goal was to have five volumes. Each volume would have 100 specimens. So that's 500 specimens per complete set. And then I think he published a total of about 30 to 35 sets. And so that's about what 15. Thousand individual specimens glued on sheets. Wow. Yeah, a lot. A lot of work. And he completed this between the years 1852 and 1860. So eight years to to finish the whole thing. Mushrooms, of course, most of them are fleshy by nature. So drying them out and putting them in a in a herbarium, that's an incredible task. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then the idea, too, is that um, you're collecting things that are growing wild naturally, and you're trying to illustrate a, a book with them, and so you want your specimens to be as uniform as possible. And so finding you know, the choicest ones that, that are uh, representative of the particular species he's trying to depict um, is quite a challenge in and of itself. You know, at, at the core, I'd say he was an agriculturalist. He, he wanted to find things that were, uh, that could be put into production. And he wrote to some extent about how, uh, which species would be uh, tasty on the dinner table and what sort of nutri- nutritional value they might afford. Mm-hmm. Um, so he definitely looked at that and then um, was also keen to, to which ones were, were toxic and should not be eaten. Um, his book does not uh, go into that sort of detail, though. He, he published those sorts of uh, ideas in, in other outlets. Um, the fungi Carolini exocati is, is largely just a taxonomic work. Um, he doesn't give much habitat description. Uh, he might say, uh, you know, here's the, the species name, and it was growing on a log in damp woods along the Santee Canal. And that's about it. That's all you get. But you don't know where along the Santee Canal. No. All right. Now, now <laughs> it, does, is, is a copy of that book in your collection? A copy of that book is held. Uh, it belongs to the Carolinianna Library. Okay. And uh, currently, I think it's they've worked out a relationship with uh, rare books and special collections. I'm going to go check that out. I just think that would be fun. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, let's move on now to the fact that uh, the Ravenel Collection, the Ravenel Herbarium, has now been digitized, mm-hmm. and you helped put that together. Right. So um, that was one of the things that we started on pretty early Early on. Uh, we were uh, in the process of uh, restoring the actual specimens, and we, at, at the A.C. Moore Herbarium, were able to use funds from the uh, Wade Batson Endowment that supports some of our projects to acquire uh, a, a camera setup. And basically what this thing is is sort of a, a light box bright box that has lights all around on the inside of it and you slide the specimen sheet in there and the camera is on a copy stand so it's shooting down uh, looking down at the specimen and that's sort of from a curatorial standpoint it's 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 a good thing because when you've got something that's dried and glued to a sheet and it's really brittle you don't want it to uh, bend and flex so much and you also don't want to flip it over upside down because things might fall off and get lost forever. So we try to keep everything face up and we slide it in there and take a picture and we're able to actually capture the picture remotely by using a mouse that's connected to the computer and then we can see the image on the computer screen and color correct it if it's you know if the white balance is off um, and we're trying to take it as as uh, high resolution and uh, be as sort of scientifically useful as possible so uh, the image will include sort of a, a color correction square uh, and also a scale bar so that you can actually do measurements on the image um, and the idea is that when we go and publish that sort of image on the web, a scientist in China could be looking at these things and be able to get an accurate measurement of, you know, how wide the diameter of the flower is and that sort of thing. And and so once you have the, uh, once the, dig- in fact, it is online, the digital collection is online, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But that means people are not going to come to you to, you're, you don't want people ha- handling that fragile original. 
Right. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is sort of a uh, there's a curatorial trick there that we we don't have to pull the specimen out of the cabinet so often for, for folks to reference. But then the, the, the flip side of that is that uh, some might argue, well, they're not going to use the collection anymore. What, what good is the physical collection? Well, the problem is, is that invariably somebody is going to look at that collection again and they might find that uh, yet yet again it was misidentified and, and the specimen needs to be updated again. We found in, in doing the restoration of the specimens that there were a, a lot of what we call type specimens. And these are specimens that would be referenced when the species was first described. So uh, when somebody creates a new scientific name and is describing a new species, they have to write an article that's published in a journal. And it includes a description, a physical description of the plant and then a reference to a specimen that's actually in a collection somewhere that serves sort of as the illustration in the sense that Ravenel was, you know, putting actual fungi in his books, the type specimen serves as the illustration for that species. There's a lot of those type specimens floating around in Ravenel's collection that we previously had no idea were, were in there. And so part of the restoration process and digitizing uh, of the, the specimens, we discover that these things are actually there. They actually add value to the collection because they are the type specimen. And can you give an example of one or two of them? Uh, there's several that are um, in the, the genus Juncus, which are uh, uh, rushes. Swamp grass. Or yeah, like yeah. Um, the the most common one is probably Juncus effusus, and it's uh, it looks like a grass, but it's technically not a grass. Um, has long, skinny leaves, uh, produces these little brown, scruffy things that probably no one would really think of as flowers, but they are indeed flowers, and they produce little achenes, which is a type of fruit. But there's several uh, specimens of Juncus that Ravenel came by um, through collaboration with a colleague. I think it was St. Only Stephen Thayer Olney, who is a, a more northern colleague, who was interested in Juncus. And in fact, I think somebody um, described him at one point as suffering from unmitigated Juncus on the brain. <laughs> so <laughs> they get into these projects and they, they, you know, they're interested in a particular species or genus, and so they endeavor to publish. The, um, the one significant work on that particular taxonomic group, and that's what only was endeavoring to do with Juncus. He was okay. really interested in it. Felt that it was poorly understood and understudied, and so he worked with colleagues to, to get these things better described. I'm, I'm just thinking back to Ravenel making that speech in the 1850s mm-hmm. when the American Academy was meeting in Charleston. Right. Is that folks really don't understand the importance of South Carolina in the scientific world, the Atlantic world, almost from founding into the early 20th century. Right. The Ravenel Herbarium is just part of the collection that you've got which reflects that. Besides the Ravenel collection, any other other collections in the Herbarium you want to talk about? You know, uh, we had uh, the A.C. Moore Herbarium as the founding collection. Uh, there's only actually about 300 specimens in there, but Dr. Andrew Charles Moore was um, uh, the first chair of the biology department at USC, and uh, he was president, I think, twice of the of the university. Uh, but he, he was not really a contemporary of Ravenel. I don't think there was much overlap, and I don't think that he uh, crossed paths with John McLaren McBride either. Uh, he was a little bit younger and came back to the university after spending some time, I think, in Illinois and uh, was interested in botany. And so he started this herbarium that we consider the founding collection now. And that's that was uh, our date is 1907. Mm-hmm. That's when it was established. And so we keep that one a little bit separate from the main collection. Now, outside of that, the herbariums, the A.C. Moore Herbarium's history, it's uh, accessioned collections from a number of other institutions that had orphaned herbaria. And this would be a collection that, for whatever reason, the, the curator uh, either retired or passed away, and uh, the institution just did not have the resources to maintain the collection. And so some of those have been transferred to A.C. Moore at USC, and that would include things like Coker College and... The Brookgreen Gardens collection are two pretty sizable ones that have been sort of um, assimilated into the main collection. 
we've talked about digitizing the collection. Mm-hmm. Now you've got a website. Right. Yeah, so the herbarium was digitizing the herbarium specimens. And while we were doing that, we were, were taking pictures of the specimens and we're entering the handwritten label information into a database. And we call that metadata. So it's the data about the image, basically. And what we were finding was that Ravenel was not very descriptive in his uh, collecting information. So he would uh, say things like uh, Aiken, stiff soils, May, you know, and that's when, where he and and how he found the specimen. Um, to a more contemporary botanist, that doesn't really give you much useful information. You'd like to know things like what were some of the associated species that were growing in and near this when the specimen was collected. Where exactly in Aiken? Does that mean Aiken County, the town of Aiken, uh, you know, two miles west of Aiken? So we weren't really getting much useful information out of what was actually on the specimens. And so that was sort of where the idea of this project was borne out in my mind when I recognized that Carolyn Annie Library had Ravenel's journals. And in consulting those, you find that he actually makes some note as to like where he actually went um, and why he went to collect these these specimens. And of course, it's it's riddled with all sorts of other political um, commentary and and his personal um, family issues and those sorts of things. But I recognized that we, it would be much easier to make uh, the herbarium collection more useful if we could easily access the information that was in those journals. And so we were also very fortunate that uh, early researchers that were interested in Ravenel back in the early 20th century had actually commissioned some folks to make type typescripts of the journals. So in addition to the handwritten journals, there's 13 volumes. We have two sets of typed transcriptions of, of what Ravenel wrote. Now, he has terrible handwriting, and I can only imagine what the, the type typist was going through when they were trying to read some of this stuff. They were savvy enough to leave blanks when it was completely indecipherable. But the advantage that it held for uh, the project and the development of the website was that we were able to perform optical character recognition on the typescripts. So that means you scan it in, and since it's a regular-shaped uh, font, the computer can actually say, oh, that's a, that's a T, that's an H, that's an E, and makes it searchable by a computer. So you can go to Google now and you can type in Ravenel and it brings up a, a page out of his journal. But what we did, we took it a step further and we developed the metadata for the journals. So this would be a page-for-page account, what is on those journals, which species he's mentioning, which uh, botanical colleagues he's mentioning, uh, which Civil War battle he's mentioning. All of that is Uh, put into the the metadata for each of the uh, pages of his journals. And so now, if you visit the the website, and can I I give that address? Absolutely. So it's ravenel, R-A-V-E-N-E-L, dot C-D-H dot S-C dot E-D-U. And that C-D-H stands for Center for Digital Humanities, which is one of our, sort of our, the glue that held the whole project together. Mm -hmm. They were very, um, very helpful in making this thing uh, come together. But so you can go to that site now and you can browse by a plant name, by a date, by a person's name or a locality. And you can also explore uh, some of what Ravenel did through maps. He took a trip to Texas. He was commissioned to investigate the causes of southern cattle fever or milk sick. And uh, we have that all mapped out with little push pins where he uh, mentions his stopovers in his journal. Um, well, so. for example, do, do you have, I'll just go back to something like Oconee Bells, do you have the common name as well as, um, obviously you've got the, the fancy scientific name. Right, yeah, we definitely have the fancy scientific names. Um, much less often do we have a common name. So from that perspective, it would make it a little bit challenging for someone who's not uh, familiar with the scientific uh, uh, names that are used in, in botany. But the browse feature can make it uh, easily navigated by just about anyone. So, and how long did we working on this project? Uh, it was sort of a, an idea for 
about five or six years now, I guess, um, we went through a couple of iterations of trying to secure funding um, to make it happen. And finally, in 2014, I believe, we finally got funding from National Endowment for the Humanities. That in itself is incredible because the NEH doesn't give out much money these days. Yeah, yeah. Herrick, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? Uh, well, I'd just like to mention, you know, Ravenel was a, a prominent botanist during the 19th century, and uh, the Civil War kind of, uh, it definitely had his its toll on his uh, livelihood, but uh, I think the, the broader reaching impact was that um, we don't pay much attention or have much knowledge of the impact the Civil War had on science in the South during that time. It's something that's largely forgotten, and uh, I'm hoping that this project and the website will um, sort of revive our understanding of, of how far it had come you know, prior to those events. Okay. Well, Dr. Herrick Brown, the assistant curator of the A.C. Moore Herbarium at USC, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I found it fascinating that today's guest, Dr. Herrick Brown, began his love of botany and biology when his parents took him to the fields around Columbia as a young child, and he collected plants, tadpoles, sort of what a lot of young Southern boys and girls did. But that sparked an interest that led to his career first at the Smithsonian and then back to South Carolina at USC. The story of Henry William Ravenel is part of the greater story of the importance of South Carolina and South Carolinians in the Atlantic world when it comes to scientific studies. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.